Revelation 21, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former order of things have passed away. And he was seated, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And from there we move down to verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the streets of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. 
and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are, who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So far the word of God. Well, good morning. The reason I'm uh, preaching this morning at rather short notice is, of course, because of the uh, the tragedy that Clinton's family faced this past week. For those of you who are not aware of that, um, Clinton's young niece, aged six years old, died tragically on Wednesday night. She was in um, Bangladesh, Clinton's brother and his wife live in Bangladesh, um, and this little girl was tragically uh, taken from this life. So Clinton has gone this weekend to be with his mum and dad. They live in Christchurch, obviously uh, deep grief for them, losing a grandchild. And it's likely that the funeral will be held in Christchurch probably, well, as soon as possible, um, maybe at the end of the coming week. And uh, Clinton and the family, Tracy and the kids, will all go over at that time. So a very, very tough time and um, heartbreaking news. Uh, it seemed to me that it would not be a bad thing to think about um, the new earth. Uh, at a time like this, about what lies beyond this world. Not, not actually heaven, but what is beyond heaven. Uh, what will be after the Lord Jesus Christ returns? And that's, that's why we're turning to uh, Revelation 21 and 22. And I don't want us to go here so much with sadness in our hearts as with joy. And there's lots of good things as well as lots of sad things. I think of Andrew and Christine, who have become grandparents this week. Um, and just rejoice with them and in the uh, little one born to Emily and Josh. So as we think about these things, um, let's bow in prayer. I feel like I'm sort of, what do you want me to do? You don't want to read a brief. She's a tough woman, isn't she? Is that, is that better? I've never preached a sermon without breathing, but we'll see how we go. Let's, uh, let's bow in prayer and then look at Revelation 21 and 22. Our gracious Father, we thank you that your word um, gives us eternal hope and we have that eternal hope because of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this passage and we think about what Jesus has done and we think about where we will be for all eternity if we have faith in Christ, as we look at that, we pray that you'd warm our hearts, that you'd give us joy, that you'd give us hope, you give us reason to press on in this world where there is both joy and sorrow. 
And so, Father, please speak into our lives and into our hearts as we think about eternity this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I imagine uh, some of you know what it's like to read a movie review that contains spoilers. Uh, Really annoying, (laughs) because if it contains a spoiler, it kind of ruins the movie. Maybe you've also had the experience I've had at times. I've recorded a football match that I want to watch later, and the last thing you want is to hear the score before you watch it. Um, If someone blurts it out or you accidentally see the score on the news, then you may as well not have recorded it in the first place. It's ruined. Uh, as, As a kid, I was always desperate to find out what I was going to get for Christmas. And one year, I found out. Uh, Through devious means, I discovered what was under the tree. And it actually ruined Christmas that year. I think we have this kind of love-hate relationship with knowing the end. We desperately want to know, and yet hmm, knowing it can kind of ruin it. And maybe that's why God in Scripture doesn't give us spoilers when it comes to eternity, but he does give us teasers. We're we're told only a little, I think, of what eternity will be like. Uh, Certainly no spoilers here, but we are told enough to know that it will be very, very good. The last couple of pages of the Bible, actually, give us these teasers. Here, more than anywhere else, we get a a glimpse. It's like the the door is ajar, and we get just a little peek through this crack in the door as to what it will be like for all eternity. Uh, (laughs) if, If I'm, say, in a hospital, and there's a door that has a sign on it, and it says, no admittance, then I just desperately want to know what is behind that door. Uh, If someone should walk through that door and it opens, I want to see as much as I can. Bodies? Blood? Like, what's behind that door? And here in Revelation 21-22, I think the door is open a crack. John, uh, the Apostle John, one of the closest earthly friends of the Lord Jesus, now as an old man, he's probably in his 90s, um, has this vision. A, a revelation, it's, a, it's an unveiling, just a small unveiling of something of what lies ahead in eternity. And so what is there? What do we see on the other side of Christ's return? As a boy, I used to think heaven sounded like an eternal church service. And that was not a cool thought. Uh, don't get me wrong, I like church, love being here but the thought of church going on forever and ever and ever um, is not, not the happiest thought of my life. And uh, often the image we have is not only of heaven as being like some kind of eternal church service, but of us being dressed in robes and wearing crowns and strumming harps. And for the average Aussie bloke, that is not an appealing way to think about forever and ever. Well, thankfully, what we see through this crack in the door is not an eternal church service wearing robes 
wearing crowns and strumming harps. No offense to the music group. John sees something here that's absolutely magnificent. And he's shown it not to satisfy our curiosity. Well, it will barely satisfy our curiosity. We only see a little bit. And we're shown it not to fuel theological debates, <laughs> though it's done a fair bit of that. That's not actually why we are given this little glimpse, so that we can all argue about our view of the end times. No, John is given this little glimpse to spur on the followers of Jesus Christ now. It's given to spur us on during our time here on this earth. You see, John is writing at the end of the first century. Uh, it's in the context of the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire is not a nice place at the end of the first century to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. The empire was marked by gross immorality. There's rank idolatry. The emperors themselves are often worshipped as deities, and there's increasing persecution for followers of Jesus. And John has given this revelation, this unveiling of something of the future, so that his readers will have reason to press on no matter what, so that they'll cling to Jesus Christ, even if they should end up in exile like John himself was on a prison island or even if they should be fed to lions or lit up as human torches, as some of John's readers would be. What, what would steal them to stand for Christ no matter what? And for that matter, what will steal us to stand for Jesus Christ no matter what? The, the only thing that will cut it is such an inspiring vision of eternity that we will count it worth any cost now. That's what I think we need. We need such an inspiring vision of eternity that we will count that to be worth any cost now. So let's look, let's look through this gap in the door. What did John see? What do we see? First of all, we see an incredible new world. An incredible new world. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. In other words, a new heaven, a new earth is a, a new world, a new universe, a new cosmos, a new created order. That's what John sees first off. Interestingly, there are two different Greek words in the New Testament for new. There, there's, there's a word for brand new, completely new, new in time, new in origin. And it's not that word here. <laughs> there's another word. That means new in nature, new in quality, renewed. And that's the word. I saw a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. It's the same word that Paul uses when he talks in 
1 Corinthians 5 about us being new creations. Remember he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And now it's not just we who belong to Jesus who become new creations. The entirety of this cosmos, the entire world is a new creation. The the world to come won't be a brand new world completely started again from scratch, but it will be this world renovated, purged, renewed, transformed. Uh, John is seeing God's extreme makeover of the cosmos. Over about 10, at least 10 years, we slowly renovated our house, one room at a time, one room each year. Uh, Lots of work, lots of mess, but a pleasure seeing it done. Earlier on, we had one or two rooms that were really gross. Um, We really only let the kids go in there. Uh, (laughs) we, We just didn't like those rooms at all. Now one of those rooms is so transformed, we love hanging out in there. This whole world will be renovated like that. Every space, every place, every part of heaven and earth transformed. And friends, that that is our eternal destiny. Not floating around on clouds, strumming harps, but living in a recreated world as physical, as tangible, as real as this world, but completely renovated. And while it will be a renewed earth, it it will also be heaven on earth. It will be heaven on earth. God himself, we're told, will remove all sadness, all sorrow, all grief all tragedy, all disappointment, all death. Never again will a young man go off to war and not return. Never will a kid go off to school and get bullied. Never again will a student go and to an exam room and come out feeling like a failure. Never again will people have to post, me too. Never again will a guy to go to work and get laid off. Never again will a wife grieve over the unfaithfulness of her husband. Never again will parents grieve over a little kid who dies. Never again will Christians be persecuted for following Jesus. Never again. How come it will be so good? Sometimes in this this world, We feel like we can't take any more sadness and grief and sorrow. Do you feel that sometimes? Sometimes it it feels like, I I can't take any more of this. There's so much brokenness. There's so many heartbreaks. 
there's so much stuff that doesn't make sense and that we can barely cope. How, how could it be so good there? Well, verse 3 tells us. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We, we need to get into our heads, and we're going to see this several times this morning, that what is so good about the new heaven and the new earth is not just that it's all completely renovated and renewed and it will be beautiful, but God is there. God present with all his love and all his grace and all his justice and all his kindness and all his beauty. You know what it's like perhaps to go to the beach and you lie in the sun and if you like sunbathing, if you don't, this illustration don't work at all, but if you like sunbathing, then it's just lovely to soak in the warmth of the sun. You bask in the sun. On the new earth, where it's heaven on earth, we will bask in the attributes of God. We'll soak in his love and his grace and his mercy and his beauty. We will be saturated in the presence of God. And in his love, he'll wipe the tears from our eyes. And in his love, we'll be secure and safe and blessed. There'll be no sin to impede it. No curse to diffuse it. No enemy to attack it. It's going to be perfection on the new earth. So that's the first thing that John sees. He sees an incredible new world. The second image that he sees, fused with that first image, and we'll find that throughout this passage, there's all this fusing of images. The second thing he sees, and the second thing we see in these chapters, is an amazing new city. Not only an incredible new world, but in that world, John now sees a city sort of descending from heaven, coming down onto this new earth, an amazing new city. We read that in verse 2. Uh, or verse, yeah, verse 2. Then I saw, it says in verse 1, a new heaven and new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no more sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then, it's, then it changes the image again. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So he sees on the new earth a new city. Jerusalem, the holy city. But then as he looks at the city, he sees it as a bride prepared on her wedding day. These same two images recur in verses 9 and 10. The angel, who is uh, John's kind of heavenly tour guide, says in verse 9, uh, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. So these two images are fused, and they are both, throughout the Bible, images of the people of God. Uh, images, if you like, of the church. What will the church be like on the new earth? 
What will we, the people of God, be like on the new earth? Well, first, like a bride. What's, what's a bride like? Beautiful. Every time. I've stood at the front of churches. I've seen brides come up the aisle. It's one of the nice things about taking wedding services. You get to stand right at the front alongside the groom, and up she comes. And every bride looks radiant. doesn't matter what they look like the rest of the time. They, they scrub up well on the day. Uh, we, our, our daughter was married. One of our daughters was married just a few weeks ago. She scrubbed up amazingly. Uh, fantastic. And it was a joy to be there that morning. Uh, around the dining room table, there's makeup and there's hair and there's dresses and, and there's all this fun and excitement of getting ready for a wedding. And what John is seeing is that there in eternity, the church, we, God's people, all God's people throughout all the ages and across all the earth, all of us will be adorned like a bride. Absolutely beautiful, stunning. What will the church be like in all eternity? Perfect. We will be perfectly united. We will be perfectly joyful. Our our praise will be perfect praise. There will be no more abuse scandals in the church. There will be no more disappointing leaders. And hallelujah, there will be no more dud sermons. Everything will be perfect. That's one image. But the other image fused with that is not only will the church, the people of God, uh, be a beautiful bride, but like a most amazing city. The city is described in verses um, 10 to 27. It's quite a long description. Alvin read it before. Let me just highlight some things about this city. Uh, First of all, It's a radiant city. It's a glorious city. It's full of rich treasures, full of precious stones. It's described, you know, the gates are made out of one dirty great big pearl. That has to be a huge pearl. Uh, The place is lined with gold. There are all these precious stones. It's a place that's, that's just lavish and amazing and splendid. It's a stunning city. The entire city, you see, reflects the majesty and the glory of God. It's also uh, a city of great security. Told about the, the huge walls and the gates. It's a secure city. Uh, in, in this world, if you have precious stones and gold and pearls, like described here, you have to have massive insurance cover and probably some kind of security system. In that city, there's unbelievable wealth, but there's no need for insurance, and there's the ultimate security system. There'll be no danger, no attack. No trouble ever. 
And then thirdly, it is an enormous city. Now, I don't know what you're like at um, Stadia as a measurement. I'm not really good at my Stadia, uh, but we're told that it's 12,000 Stadia. That's really helpful. We're also told that the um, angel uses cubits, which is a human measurement. So very kind of the angel to operate in uh, measurements that we can understand. Well, if you figure these things out, the dimensions of the city are ridiculous. It's, it's 2,000 kilometres wide and long. Basically, it's a city that would stretch from Adelaide to Perth and up to Darwin Square. That, that's the kind of dimensions we're given here. The, the picture is probably not meant to be taken literally. I don't think any of these pictures are necessarily literal. They're, they're pictures, they're images. And this is an image of an absolutely massive city. Why so massive? Why so huge? Because the whole plan of God throughout the ages has, to been, has, has been to save a multitude of people. Remember, that was the promise to Abraham in the first place. Look at the sand on the seashore. So many will be your descendants. Look at the stars in the sky. Count them if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And so now, what kind of city is needed for all those that God has saved across the ages? A massive one. I think we've got to remember that. Sometimes we feel like, eh, it's really, it's about us. You know, we're about it. The church is in a miserable place. Barely anyone's being saved. Forget it. Thousands and thousands of people are being saved. Christianity is growing at a tremendous rate. Millions of people have been won to the gospel. And when we are gathered in glory, it will be a vast multitude, unbelievably multicultural, extremely diverse. And God has to paint here a picture of just a massive city. But not only is it massively wide and massively long, not only is it an Adelaide to Perth, Adelaide to Darwin kind of a city, but we're told that it's also the same height. That's a bit bizarre. 2,000 kilometers high. Um, why does it say that? I don't think that's sort of envisaging skyscrapers like we've never seen before. Um, I think there's another reason that we're told, and it's the same height as these vast dimensions. It makes the city a cube. And that's significant as we read on in this passage because it's the same shape just on a massive scale as the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple. In, in the Old Testament temple, the, there was the, the, the outer court and then the, the holy place and then the most holy place. And the most holy place, it was a perfect cube, same dimensions, width, length, and height. And the most holy place was quite simply the most holy place. For the Israelites, it was the most holy place on earth. It was the place where God symbolized his presence. It was so holy, almost no one could go in there. Just the high priest, just once a year. That was it. Everyone else at a distance. 
because the holiness of God was too holy for sinful people to approach. But then a wonderful thing, a wonderful symbolic thing happened when Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died, the temple curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two, ripped, not by a human. It was torn from top to bottom. God symbolically ripped that temple, that, that curtain apart to open access to God. That, that's what we have through Jesus. That was the work of Jesus Christ for us. When, when he paid the penalty for our sin, when he recreated us and made us new creations, he gave us access into relationship with God. So we can now call God our Father. We don't have to stand at a distance. We can come near to God. But the reality of this life is although we can come near, we struggle to come near. We, we can experience the presence of God, but so often we don't experience the presence of God. We can commune freely with God, but so often we struggle in our communion with God. Isn't that true? We, so we, we find ourselves always wanting to be closer to God and wanting to know him better and wanting to pray better and wanting to have a, a greater sense of who he really is. Well, the picture here on the new earth is that now the entire people of God is this vast, Holy of holies. All of us there in the holy place. And that's why it says then, down in verse 22, I saw no temple in the city. All the way through this vision, John keeps saying, I saw this, I saw that. And then he said, ah, but I saw no temple. For its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. The, the Lord is there amongst his people in this vast new Jerusalem, this incredible city. And so there we will never have the experience of feeling far from God. His presence will surround us always. His praise will readily come to our lips. We'll always delight in him. We'll always find God to be our greatest joy. We'll always feel the absolute reality of God. Because he will be present with us. It's not an eternal church service. But it is an eternity where everything we do here in church will happen naturally and easily. We'll listen to God, we'll love God, we'll worship God, we'll praise God, we'll enjoy God forever. So John's seen two things so far. He's seen an incredible new world. He's seen an amazing new city. There's one more thing that we need to see. I'm really just skimming so lightly over lots of juice in these chapters. But let's see a third thing. We see a beautiful new garden. A beautiful new garden. 
in chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. You remember that the Bible begins with a garden. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a garden. He places the first man and woman in a garden. It's a beautiful place. Eden, paradise. The Garden of Eden is a place of intimacy. Intimacy between a man and a woman. Intimacy between them and God. It's a place of beauty and satisfaction and joy and pleasure. There, everything was good. Everything was right. But when the first humans rejected God and basically told God to get lost, they forfeited paradise. God evicted them from the garden. And ever since that time, we have been chasing paradise. There's just something so deeply rooted in our hearts that wants paradise. We want happiness. Isn't, isn't just about everyone in pursuit of happiness? We want peace. We want intimacy. We want joy. And so we chase, trying to find paradise. We, we chase paradise in a thousand places. We chase it in relationships. We chase it in entertainment. We chase it in work. We, we, we might get desperate and chase it in drugs. We, we, we just desperately want this inner sense that all is good and right and peaceful and happy. And in this life, we get some tastes of paradise. We get some droplets where we say, yes, this is good. But they're pretty fleeting, aren't they? Only tastes. And then it's Monday morning again. Or there's another crisis. Or there's another news bulletin, and it's full of woe. Well, what John now sees is that this new earth, this heavenly city, is pictured as a garden, a renewed, enlarged garden of Eden. In the original Garden of Eden, a river flowed, watering and nourishing the earth. And here, in Revelation 22, it says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Beautiful picture. Now, this river flows and nourishes everything. A river of life. <laughs> Jesus had said, if you come to me and drink from me, you'll never be thirsty and streams of living water will flow from you. And now that's fulfilled in the most ultimate way, streams of living water, so that everyone who's there is always ref refreshed and never thirsty. And another feature of the Garden of Eden is back, the tree of life. You remember, if you know Genesis 1 and 2, the tree of life in the center of the garden, Adam and Eve were told that they could not eat of it once they had sinned. They were cast from it. They couldn't eat of this tree and live forever. But now look at what it says in Genesis 22, 
20, uh, sorry, in Revelation 22. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The, the tree of life, in, in all its abundance, fruiting 12 months a year. Bring it on. What a great tree that would be to have in your backyard. And, and a tree whose leaves bring healing. Healing us of sin, healing us of division, healing us of grief and of sadness. It's, it's, it's a picture of, of life, of abundance, of everything we've ever dreamed for. And then it says, verse 3, no longer will anything be accursed. The whole problem we have in this world is we're under the curse. Because of our first rebellion against God, our world is under a curse. But there, there'll be nothing accursed. And that will be absolutely wonderful. All the harsh consequences of sin will be removed. No more aches and pains in your aging body. No more earthquakes or tsunamis or droughts or fires. No more sin in us. No more temptation around us. No imperfection. And once again, the third time, the climax of what is presented here is that God will be there. Look at what it says in verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They'll see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, and there'll be no need of a lamp or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In each of the pictures that we've looked at, the presence of God has been the climax of the picture. I think sometimes we mistakenly think that the best thing about heaven is going to be seeing old loved ones again. And that will be good. Jared's, Jared and Candace, the Clinton's brother and his wife, have just lost their little one. How good to see that little one again. I'm looking forward to seeing my daddy. But that's not going to be the best of it. That's good. That's not the best of it. Seeing Jesus is the best of it. Seeing the glory, the majesty, the holiness of God. That's the best of it. This, this journey of faith now is hard, isn't it? Because we live by and not by sight. We, we don't see most of the stuff we believe in, and that's hard. And so our faith wavers, and we, we start grabbing on the stuff that we can see, the stuff in this world. But then we will see God face to face, and it will be magnificent. So those are the images that... John sees. 
a new world, a new city, a new garden. But we're only looking through a crack in the door, remember? And there's just so much that we don't know. Don't come and ask me questions afterwards because I don't know, okay? I don't know. How literally are we to take all this? I don't know. They're pictures, they're images. How old will we be? I don't know. Hopefully 35, but I don't know. Where will we live? I don't know. What kind of work will we do? Will there still be preachers? Don't know. Will there be plumbers? Nah, there'll be no, no, no plumbing will be going wrong. I don't know. What, what, like, what jobs will we do on the new earth? I don't know. If there's no death, will we be back to vegetarianism? But it's meant to be perfect. <laughs> I don't know. We're given teasers, not spoilers. We're told enough to know it'll be very, very good. You won't be disappointed. And John is telling his readers that, and the Holy Spirit through John is telling us that, so that we will know that it's worth it now. That's the So what if you don't get to travel this world in this life? I'd love a European holiday. I haven't had one yet. I would love one. So what if I never get it? One day, I can travel the world. It'll be free of charge and completely safe. So much better. So what if you part with some of your finances now for the sake of the gospel? So what if you're not on a huge salary? So what if you give away quite a bit because you want to invest in the lives of other people? So what? There's a world coming of far greater wealth than you can ever have here, and what you have here you can't take with you anywhere. So what if sharing your faith is scary? It is. But isn't it worth telling people about the world to come? So what if people think you're mad for following Jesus? And it costs you perhaps your job or at least your reputation amongst your friends. So, so what? There lies ahead an eternity of fellowship and friendship and joy and relationship that this world cannot match. And John was going further with his readers. He was actually really saying, so what if it costs you your life? So what if they put you on a prison island like they've put me? So what if they feed you to the lions? Beyond it is something far, far better. Friends, can I ask you, are you mostly living for this world? or the world to come? Are you mostly living for this world or the world to come? 
if you're mostly living for this world, you've just settled for far too little. You've settled for far too little. Jesus came to rescue us from our sin, to reconcile us to God, to secure for us this eternal renovation. And it will be so much better than anything we can grab hold of in this life. Listen to the words of Randy Alcorn, who's written books about heaven. He says, To be in resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth, in resurrected friendships, enjoying a resurrected culture with the resurrected Jesus, now that will be the ultimate party. And it will, it will be the ultimate party said before, we had a wedding recently for our daughter. You know that a wedding is a fair bit of work. And it takes a fair bit of organization. And it costs a fair bit of money. For a Scrooge like me, that's the hardest bit of the deal. Was it worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Did we have a good party? Absolutely. It was a wonderful day. Will heaven be worth it? Absolutely. Will it be a good party? Will God's people serve? Absolutely. It will be the best ever. And it will be forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, thank you that you have in store for us something so amazing. Thank you that when Jesus died for us, he didn't just die to pay the penalty for our sin, but to secure for us eternity with you. And we thank you for these pictures of what that will be like. We thank you for the picture of a new world and a new city and a new garden. We thank you for the hope of perfection. And we thank you that all the centers on you and your glory and your beauty and your majesty. Help us not to settle for faint imitations here on earth. Give us a bigger hunger than ever for the world to come. And help us realize that it's worth any cost now. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.